We're back in Nehemiah tonight, so let's uh, take our Bibles and turn there together. Before Esther, after Ezra, and we'll read um, a good portion of chapter 5 tonight. The first uh, 13 verses. Nehemiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called to the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment, And said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Thus far the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. When we read the book of Nehemiah, we are not reading God's will for city development. Let's remember that. Uh, This is a book about church building, primarily, not city building. In the Old Testament, the two could not be uh, divided or distinguished because Israel was a theocracy. Uh, The nation was the church. The church was the nation. To rebuild the nation was to rebuild the church and vice versa. The, the, The political was connected to the spiritual. That's why... As Nehemiah is sent to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, he recognized that his mandate was bigger than just that, bigger than just rebuilding the structure, but actually it included reforming the people. And that reform 
is going to hit them hard here in chapter 5. Now, this is how Jesus builds his church too. Does he build us in number? Certainly. We were blessed to see him do that for our congregation this morning, adding five to our number. And does he build us up in strength so that we get the ultimate victory over our enemies? Of course he does. But listen, the main work that Jesus does is by his spirit in the hearts of those who belong to the church. Divine church building happens when the spirit of God comes into our hearts and makes us living stones that are laid upon the cornerstone who is Jesus Christ. And his righteousness then transforms us, makes us righteous, makes us holy, sanctifies us. And the church is built up in holiness and in sanctification. That's divine church building. That's what Jesus does for the people, his people. It's not just about adding the number to the number on the rolls of a particular congregation, but adding to the number of saints, holy ones who are enrolled in the heavenly places. So Jesus reforms us from within to make us fit for where we're headed, the the land of holiness. And as I mentioned, that that kind of reform from within hits the people hard in Nehemiah 5. And it's going to come back by the final chapter 2 when we get there later on. But here, Nehemiah, as God's chosen leader of the people calls out the corruption that had crept into the city over the years that they've been in captivity and been in exile. And we'll see that more than just calling out their sin, uh, he calls them out of their sin. More than just pointing out the sin, he leads them out of it through the path of confession and commitment to the Lord. So let's consider those things this evening. First, we'll see the house of God corrupted. And second, the house of God corrected. Corrupted and corrected. First, the house of God corrupted. Now, last ch- chapter we considered the external uh, threat that the people faced as they tried to rebuild the city walls. Uh, the threat was so great that to keep the work going, um, the workers had to have their weapon in one hand and, the, and their tool in the, in the other hand. But now the threat in chapter 5 is internal which is far worse. Commentator Derek Kidner puts it like this. He says, the structure at risk in this chapter is not the walls, it's the community itself, the structure of the community. Can the community hold together? All is not well in the household of God. Look at verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry from the people. Now that should make us think of Exodus 3, uh, where we are told that God, or we read that God uses that same exact word, When he says this, Behold, the outcry of the people of Israel has come up to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. The people cried out before because of how their enemies oppressed them, but now in Nehemiah 5, they're crying out because of how their families are oppressing them, their own brothers. The great outcry is against their Jewish brothers. What is going on here? Three things are mentioned in verses 2 through Five. First, the focus on rebuilding the walls has taken away from the ability of some to support their families financially, in, um, specifically by getting food, buying food. 
As all the able-bodied men are partaking in this great building project, there are less people back home to uh, produce grain. That's a problem, especially for bigger families. Verse 2, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we can eat, uh, may eat and keep alive. This is what we need to happen because there's so many of us. Translation, Nehemiah, you can't eat walls, okay? You have us working all the time on the walls. We need to be working in the fields. We need to produce grain and reap the grain and we need to eat. So there's a big problem uh, for big families during this big project. You you can imagine just, you know, in our own circles um, or our own recent history, the inflation that we're all experiencing at the grocery store and how that's um, compounded or it's felt exponentially by those who have more and more children. Now imagine a family that has a lot of kids, a lot of mouths to feed, but then Uh, The primary breadwinner is conscripted into national service, has to go serve his country, and is not going to get paid to do so. Well, there's not any less mouths to feed. Kids still need to eat, and the prices are getting higher, and now there's less money coming in. That's kind of what's going on here. So that's the first thing uh, that that is an issue within the city, within the people, Uh, that rebuilding the walls, taking away from the ability to support families. Second, there's an issue for not just people with large families, but people with land, landowners. They found themselves having to mortgage their homes and fields in order to free up cash uh, for food. Or verse 4 says that some had to borrow money to pay the taxes to the king, the king's tax. That's the Persian king. Um, And those taxes were exorbitant. And we'll learn later in the chapter, verse 7, that that they were borrowing money, they were taking out loans, and these loans came with crippling interest. Nehemiah says, verse 7, You are exacting interest from your brother, each from his brother. Now, what stands behind Nehemiah's indictment there is several passages in the Pentateuch. There's at least three, but I want to draw your attention to one. So take your Bible, flip back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 19. This is the third time it's found. It comes in Exodus 22 after the Ten Commandments, and it comes... Um, somewhere in Leviticus, I didn't write down, but then in Deuteronomy, I think it's the clearest in terms of what's the issue here. Um, And I think it's what's behind his language. So Nehemiah says, you're exacting interest each from his brother. And then in Deuteronomy 23, 19, this is what Moses said. You shall not charge interest on your loans to your brother. Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you're entering to take possession of. This is something that God required uh, in order for the people to be holy, to be different when they get into this land, which in Nehemiah's time, they're now in. This is how you'll be blessed in that land. Well, what's happened? Well, now half the people are back in in Babylon and in Assyria. They haven't been blessed because they're not keeping these very commandments. You can charge interest. It's not that interest is sinful. You can charge interest on foreigners, but you shouldn't do it within the family of God. So this phrase, you must not, you may not, you cannot, to your brother is used. And Nehemiah says in verse 7, you are exacting interest from your brother. The people are not being holy. They're not to operate according to the same principles of the world, even in their economic life, even if the interest was, was 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1
or half a percentage point, it would still be usury. Usury meaning exorbitant interest. Because what God said is zero interest. And anything more than that is a great offense to God. So, the second problem was for landowners who had to borrow money. Third, some people, and this is really tragic, were compelled even to sell their own children into slavery or worse, to pay for the taxes and food. And the worse is implied with the daughters. Verse 4, uh, verse 5, I'm sorry. And now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers and our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. Uh, the daughters have not been just taken to be workers, but wives. That's what's implied here. They are slaves of a sexual nature. But that greatest shock is the opening of verse 5 when we're reminded that the people to whom they are selling their children, the people who are taking their children, are their own relatives. Just like the people who are exacting the interest. Their brothers, what do they say? Our children have become as their children. Our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. It's as though they're saying, my, my children have become my brother's children because he took them from me. What, what's happening here? Well, a large portion of the nation is, is reeling under financial burden. They find themselves in socioeconomic straits. But some of the Jews are wealthy. Some of them have old money, we could say. They have means. They're not suffering in the same way. So what do these wealthy people do? Well, maybe first it would be better to say, what should they have done? Well, they should have gone to their neighbor, to their brother, and said, look, I see you're unable to make ends meet right now. Things are really difficult. We, we have money. The Lord's blessed us. Let me help you out right now. Oh, oh no, I couldn't do that. No, no, no. I, I want to do it. It's part of being a family. Well, I'll pay you back with interest. No, no, no. No interest. It's a gift. It's a gift. Dear brother, this is, what, this is what God would want us to do. He's given me much. I'm just giving you something small. I mean, this is nothing compared to what God has provided for me. Let me do this for you. That's what should have happened. What has happened instead? Well, imagine this. You get, a, you get a knock at your door, and it's your neighbor, and your neighbor happens to be your second cousin, let's say. And he says, look, I see things are really going difficult for you and, and that you haven't been able to make ends meet. Uh, and I, I'm worried. I, I see that, that you, didn't, you didn't get around to, to planting the vegetable garden this year. That's not good, and... And you haven't reaped any of the grain out, out back uh, because, you, you know, I, I know you're, you're out working on the wall all the time and, and you, don't have, you don't have the time or the energy to do that. And, and I'm also really concerned because I'm concerned for you. I mean, you're my relative. But I, but I noticed that, that little Mordecai, he's, he's, he's looking really skinny, really thin. He's all, he's all bones. Your poor boy. I saw him over at the at his baseball game, and he's, he's, he's just barely getting by. And, and I, I was thinking, you know, I, I have some extra food in my pantry. And, and you know, we, we want to help little Mordecai. We, we, we think we could part with that food if maybe, you know, you were willing to let him come stay with us and help out around 
around the house. You know, the missus, she's getting older. She can't keep up with the house. Things are kind of falling apart. And maybe, maybe we could have him for a couple years. I don't know. I'm sure, I'm sure that would be okay, right? Wouldn't you rather him have some food? Wouldn't that be good for, for little Mordecai? And you know, while I'm speaking of the missus and, and things, I've I got to be honest with you because, you know, our marriage isn't the way it used to be. It's not only that she can't keep up with her with the house chores, but she's not really keeping up with the wifely duties anymore, to be honest with you. And it's, it's hard. You understand. It's lonely. But, you know, your little Rebecca, she's growing into a beautiful young lady. I've noticed. Everybody's noticed. I don't imagine you might be willing to send her over along with Mordecai because I think then maybe I could help, help give you some more food, maybe even help pay, pay off what you owe on the land. You'd, you'd, be, you'd be willing to do that. I mean, you recognize the situation. You need to do it. I, I have the means. We just, we just need Mordecai to come by and help. And, and maybe Rebecca could keep me company at night. It's disgusting. It's despicable. And it's what God's people, who he said are holy, it's what they're doing right now. And so the outcry, verse 1, is completely understood. There's corruption, clearly. There's loan sharks, oppressive money lenders, people greedy for gain, both physically and economically. But the real tragedy isn't the corruption within the family of God, but it's that the family of God has become corrupted. What I mean by that is that Nehemiah 5 is describing a sick perversion or corruption of the ideal of God's people and who they are to be and how they are to act. They're treating each other like strangers. They're treating each other like enemies even. There's no holiness here. This internal threat is the greatest threat that they face so far. Now this threat of brother turning against brother because he's greedy for gain is not unique to Nehemiah 5. Something similar happened in our own borders back in the early days of our nation. Thomas Boylston was a prominent Boston uh, merchant who sold a variety of goods. And in 1776, you know what was going on at that time, uh, he was accused by the Massachusetts Committee of Safety of charging exorbitant prices for his goods. This is during the winter when the uh, soldiers, uh, the the colonists, did not have warm clothes. Uh, Many were dying in the winter or needed to get limbs amputated because they could not get warm clothes. Why couldn't they get them? Because they couldn't afford them. This is what the committee found. They said Boylston sold coats for six or seven pounds, where they might have been bought for three. Breeches for three or four pounds, which should have been sold for 30 shillings. Shoes for 10 shillings, which might have been bought for five. The committee of safety viewed Boylston's pricing practices as an affront to patriotism, to the patriotic cause, and they took uh, action addressing the issue. They passed a resolution stating that, quote, any person who shall sell any necessary article for more than the customary price, shall be deemed an enemy to the country and be subjected to the same punishment as if he were actually up in arms against it. So if we think it's bad for a, one citizen to disadvantage a fellow citizen, especially in times of war, what about when those citizens are related both by blood and by covenant? Because that's what's happening in Israel. And so is it any wonder that we read in verse 6 that Nehemiah says, I was very angry. I was very angry. We should hope so. You know, that's a good thing that he was angry. You know, the Bible says 
be angry and do not sin. You ever consider that the anger is a command? Be angry. It's not if you're angry, don't sin. No, it's such that there are certain times where you better be angry. We call it righteous anger, righteous indignation. And if Nehemiah was not angry because of what was going on in Israel at this time, he would be a horrific leader. If a parent is not angered by the sin of their children, but they're angered when they are inconvenienced, then they've got their priorities all mixed up. Nehemiah is angry for the right reasons. And also, he does not sin in his anger. That's why the next verse says, I took counsel with myself. Well, that's some good advice there. This is just a freebie. This is an aside. It's not one of the main points. But you ever think about when you're angry, the next thing you should do before you open up your mouth is take counsel within yourself. He takes counsel and then he speaks. How many times have we had to apologize because we were angry and then we spoke and we took counsel afterwards and thought, it's really stupid what I said. I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry for saying that. You can save yourself a lot of time, a lot of heartache. You take counsel before you speak. Well, he composes himself and he thinks about what he's going to do. What is he going to do? What will God do through Nehemiah to correct the corruption? And now as we see the house of God corrected, we can draw out four things that Nehemiah does. Four things. First, first he confronts the people with their sin. He gathers all the people together in a a citywide assembly, and he just calls a spade a spade. He just says, what you're doing is not right. Verse 9, right? Verse um, 9, he says, the thing that you are doing is not good. Why is it not good? Because it goes against God's law, as we've already said. We read from Deuteronomy in one instance. By the way, this is what God's law is there for, so that we can know when something is not right. God's law is the straight line, as uh, C.S. Lewis would call it, so that I, you and I can call a crooked line crooked. How do I know this isn't right? Because I have the law of God which tells me what is right. It's the straight line, so I can say this one is crooked. And the reason today our world is drowning in a sea of subjectivity is because in the main we have removed God's law as a guide for right living. We say, what you're doing is not good, and they say, keep it to yourself. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. You can't tell me that what I'm doing is not right. You don't have that authority. Yes, I don't have that authority. God does. And he's the one who says it's wrong. But when we lose that, we aren't able to have those kinds of conversations. That's why we take the law of God so seriously in our church. It's why we read it every week, because we need to know what the right thing is. We need our sin to be exposed And I just want to say, if you've never felt the guilt of your sin, the weight of your sin, if you've never felt shame on a Sunday, then either you're not paying uh, attention well enough, or I'm not doing my job. Coming to worship isn't all about patting yourself on the back, I feel so elated. Church isn't about, I just feel good, I've got this spiritual high. That's not the point of church. The point of church is you're meeting with God, God is holy, you are sinful, that shouldn't always feel good. That's why we read the law. What you're doing is not good. Part of the health of the church, part of building the church, is God's Spirit graciously exposing our sin to us before it's too late. Before it's too late. Now, beyond their behavior being sinful, it was also stupid. Verse 9. We, as far as we're able have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold back to us. Translation from Nehemiah. 
translation. We've had a hard enough time getting back our brothers from indentured servitude when the pagans came for us, but now we have them back. Are we going to sell them into slavery to ourselves? Are we going to be the ones to enslave them? And Nehemiah strikes a nerve because what's the reaction? They don't speak a word. They're completely silent. They feel their guilt. So first, he confronts the people. Second, he calls them to obedience. He calls them to obedience. Uh, Still in verse 9. The thing that you are doing is not good. Then he says, here's the call. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? Again, a reference to the law of God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And the one who fears God will obey the wisdom which is laid forth in his law. Ecclesiastes, the final verse. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the entire duty of man. Uh, Nehemiah also indicates that fearing God will protect them from their enemies. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? Why? What's he say at the end of verse 9 there? To prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. He's saying that how impressive the wall looks on the outside won't matter if when the people look on the inside they see this kind of corruption. When they see the citizens are a mess. Right now... As we read in chapter 4, they're being mocked for their attempts to build the city. And he's saying, rebuilding it isn't going to stop their mouths. Oh, wow, they actually did get the wall. We should stop mocking them. He said, that's not going to stop the derision if when all is said and done, their neighbors look inside and see this kind of behavior. That will really make them laugh. You know, these people thought they're so special. They think they're different from us. They have this special God, this Yahweh who calls them to holiness. Uh, they think they're doing things that we, um, that we don't do in terms of this right living. Well, I'll tell you what, they are doing stuff we would never do because we would never treat our family like this. It will bring shame on them and on Yahweh. And many years earlier, Moses reasoned along the same lines. Deuteronomy 4. See, I've taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you're entering to take possession of. Why? So that when people hear of it, they'll say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law? This call to holiness and obedience to God's law is something the church needs to hear today as well. Every time a scandal uh, hits the evangelical church, the name of God and the credibility of the gospel is what ultimately suffers. And so for us here at Community, I want to remind you that our greatest uh, witness to the world and our greatest calling before God is nothing more than to fulfill the law of love, to fulfill His law. Uh, And if I could just apply it to our current situation, if the Lord does smile upon us and if He sees fit to bless us with a new, uh, bigger building, that undoubtedly will attract visitors. There's just, there's just no about, doubt about it. When you move locations, more people hear about it, uh, different people hear about it, people come. But if we get this nice building and we get people come visit us and what they see on the inside is a bunch of people who don't care about each other, then it will all be for nothing. It won't have mattered a bit. No matter what we sacrifice to get it, it won't matter how great the Lord was in providing it. We will have spurned that gift wasted that gift with our poor witness. And so, Nehemiah's words are so important. Ought we not walk in the fear of our God 
to prevent the taunt of our enemies. Okay, so Nehemiah confronts their sin, calls them to obedience. There's a third thing he does, and this one's the most interesting, the most surprising. And that is that he confesses his own shortcoming. Did you notice that in verse 10? Let's read verse 10. Moreover, in other words, on top of all of that, I and my brothers and my servants, my closest of kin, are lending money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Now, some commentators want to try to uh, um, vindicate Nehemiah, say he's innocent. They, They say all he says is that he's lending money and grain, and lending is not wrong. And then he tells the people, you need to stop the interest. I'm lending, you're the one who are charging interest. But I don't think, I think the most easiest way to read this, the straightforward reading, is that Nehemiah is owning up to his own complicity in this injustice. He's getting down at the level of the people, and he says, even I, moreover, even I have lent. And then he says, so let us, and he includes himself, not let you, let us stop the exacting of interest. So how do we read this? He's saying, I've lent and I've Charged interest. He was a man of means. He's, he's the governor sent from Persia. He had a whole entourage. He had money and he takes it and he lent it, but he charged interest. That moreover is what's so gut-wrenching. Verse 10, moreover. And Nehemiah is saying something like, what's worse is that even I have failed you. He's listed all these horrendous ways in which they were corrupted as a people of God, but then he still has to say, moreover. J.I. Packer points out how this would have been a powerful corrective and a motivator for the people. He says, Nehemiah's gesture enhanced his moral credit. Here spoke an honest and good-hearted man, one who was prepared to confess his errors of judgment and lapses from wisdom and change for the better. In other words, he's leading by example. And we would have to agree with J.I. Packer that yes, that is um, powerful. We respect people in authority when they acknowledge their own uh, faults and failures. Uh, People who don't try to trick us into thinking that they've got their life all together and they do everything perfectly. Um, A pastor friend of mine in North Carolina has a practice every Lord's Day um, when they confess uh, or when they read the law of God and then confess their sin, which we do every Lord's Day morning, he does something interesting, and um, it just wouldn't work out with the layout of our current building, but he reads the law of God um, from the pulpit, and then when it comes for the corporate prayer of confession, he steps down from the pulpit, and he gets on the main floor, and he says the confession, turning with the people facing the pulpit where nobody's standing, as a way of saying, I'm not any better than you. I'm down there with you. And then he steps back up, and he declares the gospel, the assurance of pardon from the pulpit. The word of God gives the law, as he's God's mouthpiece giving the law. He's God's mouthpiece declaring the gospel. But he wants to say, I'm not God's mouthpiece when I confess my sin. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I think it's so powerful. A powerful motivation for change when we see our leaders paving the way. Uh, in our own presbytery recently, there was a, a sin um, that was... Uh, pointed out in one of our ministers and that that pastor took an amazingly humbling effort to not only confess that sin to the the person offended but at a congregational meeting with the entire church read a letter of confession and contrition and asked not only the person who he sinned against for forgiveness but the entire congregation that's the way that is the way to lead Um, and that that will bring a measure of correction to the church 
But let's be honest, it will never be enough. It will never correct the church enough. We can never correct enough. There will always be sin remaining in us and in our leaders unless there was a sinless leader. Unless there was one who could lead us in perfect obedience. Of course, Jesus, the church, the church builder, does just that. Never any corruption to own up to. Never any sin to confess of. Jesus shares in the sins of his people only in that God imputed them to him when he hung on the cross. He was as sinful as sin could be, even though he himself never committed a sin. Here's the difference. We've seen a lot of ways in which Nehemiah is showing us what it means to be a good leader, right? A lot of ways in which he shows us Christ. But here's one of the blessed ways in which Nehemiah and Jesus are different. Because in Jesus, as he speaks to us, as he leads us as God's people, he never has to say that gut-wrenching, moreover. What's even worse is that I'm no better than you. He never once, never once had to utter those words. And that's why our faith is in him. That's why he's the chief shepherd and every other leader is an under-shepherd. Don't put your faith in your pastors. Don't put your faith in me. Well, you knew that. That's an easy one. Don't put your faith in some preacher you listen to online. Put your faith in the good shepherd, the chief shepherd, the overseer of our souls, because he is one who is sinless. And that's what the church needs to correct our corruption. We need His righteousness. And He gives it to us, even as He takes on our sin. Finally, and, and, and briefly here, as we close. What does Nehemiah do to correct the, the corruption of the church? He confronts their sin, calls them to obedience, confesses his own shortcomings. Finally, he charges them before God to change. He's not interested in just talking, uh, interested in just talking about how bad they are. He wants to see real steps taken towards new obedience. So look at verse 11. Return to them, that is your brothers, this very day, all the stuff you took from them, their fields, vineyards, olive orchards, houses, and money, and so forth. In essence, he's calling for a year of jubilee right here, right now. Remember the year of jubilee when things that were uh, uh, um, loaned or sold to people would be returned back to their owners? And the people say they will do it, but notice Nehemiah says that's not good enough. Verse 12, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We'll do as you say. But then he goes, and I called the priests and I made them swear to do what they promised. He makes them take an oath before God. Again, something else we saw this morning, right? Where we had two families who came and they said, you know, we really like this church. We like, we like being with you guys. We like worshiping with you guys. We're going we're gonna to hang out with you guys. We want to do this with you. Now, here's where you make it serious, right? This is what church membership is all about. Promise it before God that you're going to be a part of this people. That's what Nehemiah is saying. I'm going to bring the priests in. You said you're going to change. You said you're going to do something. Vow it before the people and before God. Vows are serious. So he really wants them to underscore what they're saying by calling the priests and making them take an oath. And he says it's very serious. He says if they don't get God's household back in order they will be kicked out of it. He does this enacted parable where he, he, uh, he brushes the crumbs off of his, his robe. 
He says, that's what God's going to do to you if you don't get this house back in order. Now, what's the people's response to that very scary warning? See it there in verse 13. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. What? He just said, God will send you to hell if you do not obey. And the people said, Amen, preach it. Preach it. We could go to hell if we don't obey. Praise the Lord. What makes sense of this response? It's a twofold response. First, they said, Amen. And then they worshiped, they praised. Well, first, the amen, it comes from a spirit rock conviction that what God does is always good. And it's always right. And it's always just. Even if it means their condemnation. I wonder if you have that conviction this evening. Do you argue internally or maybe even publicly with the demand that God places on his creatures? He's so cruel. He's so unfair. He requires so much. Or do you see that he's holy? And so that those who sin against him do deserve to be cast out from his presence. They say amen because they acknowledge that God is not being harsh. He is not being unfair. He's just in demanding this obedience and in exacting judgment if they fail to walk in that obedience. That's what that amen is. It's a spirit-wrought conviction that God is just. Amen. Thank you. And then... The second thing is they praise him. Okay, again, we say, now how do you praise God in response to this warning that if, if you don't obey God, he's going to kick you out of his house. And they praised him. They say amen because God is just. They praise him because he's merciful. Because they have not obeyed him. They deserve to be kicked out of the house. And where are they at that moment? They're still in the household of God. They are still within the, the, the city boundary of Jerusalem. They shouldn't be there at all, but they praise the Lord that he's given them a second chance. And if you're here tonight, if you're part of the church, you've received the blessing of that second chance. You know the mercy of God. You know that you don't deserve to belong to his house. And yet he's welcomed you in any way, not because of anything you've done, but because of Jesus Christ, your elder brother, the one who set the house in order, said they can come. And so the people praise the Lord. And so, friends, we don't deserve it, but here we are in God's house. In gratitude, let's live lives that look to the world like we are, in fact, part of God's family. Who knows? That kind of lifestyle might be the exact thing that God uses to bring more people into his house and into his family. Amen? Let's pray. Father, would you... Write your eternal truth on all of our hearts so that we would walk in your ways, relying on the Spirit alone to give us the obedience that you demand. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.